a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Coming up on this week's show, the Nintendo PlayStation is up for auction. A new look at Streets of Rage 4. And we get some amazing inside stories from Cygnosis with this week's special guest, Ian Greve. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 213. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Joe Fox. We've got an empty seat over there this week. I know, it's a bit cold. Like, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> because Ravi's not very well. No, he's not very well and he can't come in today. And I really don't like it, it's really weird. But looking over there, a dark empty corner. Yeah, like he's set up there, but he's, he's just not there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's coronavirus, I think he's just got the man flu. I think he's, he's just all right. Flu, yeah. We don't have to panic or anything. But yeah, Ravi will be back with us next week. Now, we're going to be joined by an absolute legend on this week's show. And he's actually took the time out to talk to us on Skype from America, but originally he was from the UK. And uh, this week we're going to be joined by Ian Grieve. Now, Ian, he worked for Cygnosis back in the day. I think, you know, if you're naming, like, you know, the top British video games labels from back in the 90s, Cygnosis will be up there in, like, my top five. Easily. Yeah, absolutely for sure. And we're going to be talking about some legendary games such as Lemmings, Shadow of the Beast 2, Theory of Death, and G-Police, and one of my favourites as well from the PS1, Colony Wars. Yeah, yeah, amazing games. So, and I love, I love the fact as well... He's lived in America for a long time, but he's, got, yeah. he's still got that proper scout humour. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, he's still got the accent as well. So, and it really, really, no hold, like, he didn't hold back at all no, in the no. interviews. You're going to enjoy this one, finding out some stories about legendary Cygnosis games with Ian Greve, our guest on the show, in around 15 minutes from now. Now, we've got some good stories to talk about on this week's show as well, including a piece of video games history that you could own if you've got a spare 300 grand. At the oh, moment, God. in your bank account, I, I, I have. <laughs> but of course you have, I, Joe. Of course I have. <laughs> Whether my wife will let me. <laughs> no, I don't really. <laughs> no, actually, not a very good link there because uh, we haven't actually got any money. Let's just get that out there. <laughs> but this might be a good time just to mention the Hall of Fame that we do in the podcast every week. Now, we do need your help to keep the podcast going every single week. And uh, we do have a little donation button on our website. Now, all you've got to do, if you want to help out the show, we always say every week it's a tip jar. Yeah. We look, this show will always be free. But if you like what we do, we ask that you take a couple of seconds and think of it maybe, I don't know, the cost of a cup of coffee once a month. You could really help out this show. Help us pay for stuff like our website hosting, the software that you used to edit the show, getting it out there on all the distribution platforms and everything. And for doing that, you will find your place on the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week William Browning Gareth McKee Luke Rossiter and Mark McCorkle who all made donations into the running of the show and if you'd like to do the same you'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com now no messing around this week let's get straight into the stories now uh, the Nintendo PlayStation obviously that is probably I mean I've been seeing some really interesting comments about this because we remember when it came out 
probably about five, six years ago now that Protocol yeah, it's, found. It's been knocking about now for a while, hasn't it? But it's finally up for auction. Yeah. And it's hitting the high numbers. It's what's it on now? Like three hundred and fifty grand or something? Well it's actually weirdly enough, I mean it's on um, an auction website mm. and it's got about at the time recording this, about a week left on there. Yeah. But it seems to have the price has kind of stagnated a bit over the last yeah. couple of days. Yeah, because a friend of mine actually tagged both of us in it. Yeah. The day it went up, and like within a minutes, it's like forty grand, fifty grand, sixty grand, and then I kept an eye on it, and then it just, it's just stopped. I think it was like you said, it was about three hundred grand, three hundred and fifty grand somewhere around there. Like you say, it's not moved from there for about a week and a half yeah, now, has it? Which is weird, and I think it's actually gone down a bit. I think there's some people who maybe took the bids off, really? you know, attracted the bids because it was three hundred and fifty thousand, and now it's okay. three hundred thousand. Right. So there has been a bit of a drop off there as well. I mean, obviously, this is a really important prototype. Now, I've been reading stuff on forums. People, I don't think, grasp the idea of why you don't want to own this. People are like, well, it's, it's just a Famicom with a CD-ROM drive on there. There's no games for it. Yeah, yeah, Kind of yeah. completely missing the point. Yeah, they're missing, <laughs> the, they're missing the point, missing the story and, yeah. you know, the, the heritage, if you will, of it and everything. So I wonder, I think it is going to go for more. Yeah. I can't see it sticking at 300 grand with another, like, say, there's like seven, eight days left on it right now. By the time the episode comes out, there's going to be about three or four days on it. So I can't see it, it staying there. But whether it's going to hit like a million, don't think it will. But I think it's definitely going to go maybe for... If I had to put a prediction, I'm going to say 500. Placing your bet. Yeah, I'm going to say 500. <laughs> but hats off to Ravi, because he kept on saying that he think, he thought it was going to hit like the high numbers. And yeah. I was a bit like, oh, we'll see. But it is. I mean, it is a one-of-a-kind prototype. Mm. And I think the reason that it's so important is because obviously, I mean, everyone knows the story, I'm sure. Yeah. Is it that kind of missing link between Nintendo and the Sony PlayStation? It's mm, when they're working mm. together. This machine that essentially was going to be a Super Nintendo with a CD-ROM yeah. drive. Everyone was doing it then. You had the Mega CD and stuff was coming out. But obviously it got cancelled. But if it wasn't for that cancellation and that fallout, the PlayStation would have never come along. And that is obviously probably the defining video games console of the last 25 years. Yeah, and... I think it was either you or Ravi said something about like it belongs in a museum yeah. as well. And it's not not just like a computer museum or a games console museum. Like it's a genuine like piece of history. Mm. Gaming is such a huge piece of media now. And the PlayStation is one of the like the dominant force. Do you know what I mean? It changed like, the world, didn't it? It changed the world. Yeah. So it's it's gonna be weird seeing where it goes if it just ends up in somebody's collection just on their shelf in their <laughs> in their games room, which is absolutely fantastic. It's with a fan. But at the same time, part of me, you know, does feel like you know, you just putting it into words there about how important it is. It is a bit like, yeah, it sh- it should be somewhere in a science museum, like a famous, do you know what I mean? A famous one. But we'll see. <laughs> You'd want it in your games room. Oh so god, hundred percent. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. If I could, if I got given it, it'd, it'd go in my games room. Yeah, I know how selfish it, I can be. Joe's open to offers. Yeah. You know what? The the guy that's selling this, I did read that he got offered a million dollars for it last year and he turned it down. Do you reckon that's fake news or real? It could, I mean, that could have been a story you put out there before. Yeah, he started, it's quite clever way did it. You'd be like, yeah, I got a, I, I got offered a mil. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think it will be interesting to see where it goes though, because it's like, I mean, have you ever sold an eBay before? Yeah. And like it's always that last like minute. Yeah, yeah. When the price hundred percent. I mean you get a couple of bids at the start, nothing for about a week, and then that last sixty seconds is when it all goes quadrupled crazy. or something. Yeah. yeah. So this is like when you're bidding on something as well and you're just there trying to get it for like a few pence less. <laughs> just I've just got these visions of someone who's had like you know a few too many glasses of wine when it ends, oh, I'll buy that next morning. What have I done? <laughs> so yeah, don't have any wine this week, Joe. <laughs> no, I won't be. So uh, yeah, we'll keep that's gonna be interesting to see how much it goes for though. So if you want to uh, do if you want to make a bid on the auction, we'll put a link in our show notes at the retro hour. Now, of course, a game that you've been really excited 
excited for. I have as well. Whenever we have like a night in playing video games and stuff around your house, it's always Streets of Rage. Yeah. Always inevitably comes out. And we're getting the fourth game soon as well. Now we've got another teaser trailer that they've released. Yeah, so Streets of Rage 4 should be coming this year. I'm not too sure when it is coming out, but they've revealed a new character is called Floyd Aria. Right. Aria. Um, who is very, very reminiscent of Max from um, Streets of Rage 2. Yeah. I actually thought at first glance, you know, watching the trailer, it was meant to be Max. And he's got like, he's you know, the big wrestler kind of like physique and he's got um, bionicle arms. And I was a little bit like, what have they done to Max? But then you watch it and it's this new character called Floyd. But as long as well as announcing that, they've announced that it is for the first time ever four player local co op. That's cool. And online as well. Um, first time four player Streets of Rage game. And it does look really, really, really awesome. And I'm sure we'll all pick it up day one. And I'm sure at the next kind of, you know, the next Christmas party, we'll all be playing it and stuff <laughs> as well. But I am excited about it. But I'm a little bit nervous as well because I'm not 100% keen on the artwork. We've talked about that before, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. See, artwork, it's kind of like that comic book style, I'd kind of say. It looks a bit hand drawn, but I think yeah. it's, it's the outlines of them, I think. That's why. Yeah, it, it looks good. You know when they did all the hand-drawn artwork for the Switch version of Street Fighter 2? Yeah. Like, it still looks like Street Fighter 2. It still was Street Fighter 2. Whereas, looking at this, if you were watching, like, one of the other characters, I don't... Unless, you know, if I showed it to, like, my dad, who is familiar with Streets of Rage but doesn't follow gaming, yeah. I don't think you'd go, oh, that's Streets of Rage. Do you know what I mean? I think it's it's... It's a little bit too far away, but then, you know, you can tell, like, the enemies and stuff for the Streets of Rage enemies, so it's, it's a hard one. And it's, it's weird. I think it's a, a fine balancing act as well. I mean, you can either yeah. go down the Sonic Mania route and just kind of make yeah. the graphics like the originals, yeah. or you can do something different. Yeah. I quite like the look of it, but I think from looking online, from forums and Reddit and Twitter and that kind of thing, that does seem to be people's main complaint, that mm. it looks so different. Mm. I mean, it also looks like some of the screenshots... It looks a bit too light and bright <laughs> compared to the old games as well, I think. It's yeah, I don't know, because number one, they're quite famous. You know, you'd say the Streets of Rage games are quite famous for their, like, bright graphics and stuff. Like the neon against, style, I yeah, remember, yeah, against the urban setting. So they are, they're trying to reimagine that, I guess. You know, they're trying to do that again. But I think what they've kind of done is, in the really gritty-looking levels, they've seemed to have neoned it up with people's attacks. And yeah. they seem to have really upped the ante on, like fire punches and thunder punches and stuff like that which there is in the original games but it's kind of there's like a minimalistic do you know what I mean whereas this one there's like clips of people punching the floor and the entire level lighting up it almost looks like daytime which I think that's for me Streets of Rage I don't remember it being like a daytime game it's yeah, always at night it's always it? at night yeah. yeah so it looks good but it might be a little bit too much with right. like do you know what I mean I think you might be right with the lighting well, it's coming out soon, apparently spring. Is it spring? So, yeah, we haven't got long to wait for it. I mean, like you said, it, it's going to be a day one purchase. For yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely both of us. I'm hoping I can get a physical copy. If I can't, just download it. But Yeah, that's the thing to me. I'll, I'll probably get it on the Switch. Yeah. That's like the platform that I generally play most of these kind of... I mean, to be fair, that's my main gaming system these days. Really? I barely ever turn my Xbox on, to be honest. Yeah. But I think that kind of game does lend well to the Switch. Having the four local multiplayer as well, four player, that's going to be interesting to see how well that dynamic works on screen. And I mean, sometimes you have two players and like, come on, hurry up, having four on screen at the same time. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, I shout at my wife and stuff when we play Streets of Rage through anyway. So playing it with my wife, you, and then, you know, your wife as well. It sounds stressful already, doesn't it? Screaming at all three of you, like, come on! Because Joe generally does a, is a master at Streets of Rage. Yeah, so I usually like to use everybody. But in the same respect, I like to use everybody as like, you know, 
cannon fodder. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So it could work out for me. <laughs> so we'll be keeping an eye for that as soon as we get a release date and uh, we get it downloaded and bought. We'll uh, give you our thoughts on Streets of Rage 4. Now, obviously, we're all big music fans as well. You're in a band. You've actually yeah. been doing your music video uh, at the weekend. Yeah, I have. Yeah. You always bring that up. Like, I always get so awkward. I think well. you a little plug on the show, do Yes, you? I am in a band, yes. 100 crowns. <laughs> 100 crowns. Yes. Yeah, so we get people tweeting us going, What's your bank called? We want to check out the, uh, ch- check out the video. 100 crowns. Yeah, someone, said, someone tweeted us once, Are they a bit like the Backstreet Boys? Yes. Yeah. Yes, very, very, we similar, are. Yeah. very similar. Very similar. Joe's a metal scream <laughs> in the middle of it. Um, I mean, we're big fans of music, and you know, I've been a DJ for many years. Uh, but have you got any music on floppy disk? <laughs> I've got no music on floppy disks. In fact, I've got no floppy disks. <laughs> well, this is really good. This is on Hacker Day. Now, this is a guy who's uh, essentially made a Spotify jukebox yeah. from floppy disks. So how does that work? Well, originally I looked at this and I thought, have they done like some really hardcore compression to yeah. fit an album on? It's been a floppy disk. holds like what a high-density one's about. 1.4 megabytes. Really? And like an MP3 song is generally a megabyte a minute. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're going to get like a 1 minute 40 maximum yeah, 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 you know, yeah. at low quality. So I was like, how on earth have they done this? Turns out it's not quite as clever as you might think. They haven't actually shrunk the album down. Okay. But he's actually made floppy disks and he's put like um, the album artwork covers on the stickers. Yeah. So you've got like a Kasabian one here is showing off. Uh, it loads of different ones he's got. And what he, what he essentially does is he's got a USB floppy drive. He puts a disk in yeah. and then there's a little bit of code on the disk that sends it to a program and then gets the URL from Spotify and plays the album off there. So you put the floppy disk in. Yep. And it kind of just instantly opens Spotify on your computer and then we'll play that album. Yeah, so I imagine there's a program on the computer that's like checking the disk drive for yeah. what gets inserted and just reads the URL essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, technically, it's probably not the most incredible achievement in the world. You could, I mean, someone mentions it in the comments here that you could do it with a QR code or something. That's yeah. essentially all it is. Yeah. But the act of having, I mean, how impressive is that? It's, it's yeah. the fact that it's on a floppy disk. It's like, way. Yeah, when you make it come out, yeah, it's going to put my new album in. Yeah, pop it in your floppy disk. You should bring out your band's album. Oh, oh on I, floppy you know disk. what? We'll do that. <laughs> Wouldn't that time well with your retro gaming podcast as well? There you go. You can uh, give, give a little royalty payment for the idea a bit later. So if you don't check it out, there's a good video of it actually. I'll shove that in our show notes this Fantastic. week. Fantastic. <laughs> now, speaking of impressive things, I remember when Doom came out back in the day. And then, as a lowly Amiga owner at home, um, I was telling this story, actually, in one of my recent YouTube videos. I did a video all about the Apple Newton, that like you know famous flop of a PDA that came mm. out in the early 90s. And I actually used to check out a lot of cutting-edge games and technology in quite an unlikely place. Yeah, It was Ryman, the stationery shop. Okay. <laughs> so not like Dixon's or anywhere like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Some reason, like Ryman, I remember them being like really good in my hometown back in the early 90s. They had like gaming PCs and all that yeah. set up in there. And I remember going in and like I saw Wolfenstein 3D for the yeah. first time in there and Doom. Yeah. And I remember playing that and, and it was such a, a landmark moment. And I remember seeing that thinking, this is going to change everything. Yeah. This is like going to be the new standard for what games are like. And obviously... And that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, to this day, you can still trace a lot. I mean, you play Call of Duty and stuff like that. A lot of the... The way the games work still go back to Doom. Yeah. That came out in, in the early 90s. Well, one thing then, I mean, being an Amiga fan, it was mainly platform games on the Amiga mm. and like puzzle games, similar to Mega Drive, that kind of thing. But when Doom came out, I remember thinking, oh, it'd be great if I could play that on my Amiga. And I remember John Carmack, he actually wrote a Usenet post. A lot of people were asking him, is Doom going to come out on the Amiga? And there's a letter that someone actually posted on one of the Facebook groups the other day, him essentially giving all the reasons why Doom couldn't run on an Amiga. Okay. And why they wouldn't release it for it. Yeah. Now it turns out all these years later, 
Someone's cracked it. Someone's got Doom Somebody's running on an A500. And on an A500. And it's not too slow either, is it? It's like, like the frame rate is really impressive. Yeah, it's quite good. So, so how have they done this? Well, this is, I mean, there's actually a big thread on the English Amiga board on yeah. EAB. And, uh, I mean, you can watch this video. It's 15 and a half minutes long, but it kind of shows a lot of the, the making of the game and mm. how he's laid the levels out and everything too. So what he's done is it's quite low colour compared yeah. to the original Doom. I've got a feeling it's only about 16 colours in there. It's a little bit grey. But it's got stuff like the, the sky animation and yeah. stuff. You don't even see the sky going across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is something you generally didn't get in a lot of FPS games on the Amiga back then. Um, and it does run really smooth on a 7 megahertz Amiga 500 with yeah. 1 megabyte of RAM. And it is Doom. You can see the smooth scrolling. Oh, yeah, it's Doom. 100%. Yeah. You, you look at that, it's Doom. Yeah. No doubt about it. And at the moment, there's only like a, a demo map and I don't think there's a download link so far. Okay. Um, but I'm hoping that he will release this. Because one thing I've always found about, you know, id Software and stuff, they've always been quite open to the modding community yeah. and fans doing stuff like this. I can't see them having a problem with it. Yeah, if they release hopefully it. won't be shutting it down or anything. Because, I mean, Doom did come out on the Amiga later. Mm. Um, it was like, I think when they... When it got open-sourced, I've got a feeling, around 97, 98. I okay. think it might come out on the Amiga then. Um, but it was it, it, it was something that you needed quite a higher machine to yeah, run. Yeah, yeah. But this running on, I mean, God, if that had come out back in the day, it's like <laughs> I'd have played that to death. At yeah, home. yeah, yeah. Worn away the keys and everything on it. Well, it looks better than some of the like, the 3DO version. I think I'd rather play this. I was going to say, I was going to say, I'd rather play that than this. Um, I was going to say the SNES version then, but I'm getting from the uh, Jaguar version. There we go. <laughs> the Jaguar version, actually, I, I thought that was a pretty good port of it, apart from the fact it didn't have music. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like. You look at that, and I remember it did come out in the 32X, didn't it? Yeah. And that was a pretty decent version of it, but this doesn't look too far behind that, no. and it's running on stock Amiga hardware. I was going to say, it's got a nice solid frame rate as well. Like, I don't know, I don't want to say it's a 30 frames per second, but it's probably a solid 20. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's smooth, it's smooth enough. And I think it's, it's just, it's proof that over time, when people learn these systems more, the things they do with them now that you never mm. thought was possible back mm. then, it's just, you know, it makes you wonder what you're going to see next. So I definitely want to play that. Um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on the progress of that. Right, we'll get well soon, Ravi. Hopefully we'll see him again next week. Um, I know we have got some another really good guest coming up next week. Kind of a bit of a part two to what I'm going to be talking about here. We have this week's guest getting some stories from Cygnos. It's one of the most infamous video games companies out of Britain. Let's get on this week's special guest, Ian Grieve. You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast, and it is time for the main event. Then let's welcome on this week's special guest. We're going to get some brilliant stories about companies like Cygnosis, of course, classic games like Shadow of the Beast 1 and 2, Wiz and Liz, Microcosm, G-Police, and many more as well. Let's welcome on Ian Grave. Hello, Ian. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, before we get into the uh, history of those games and companies that you worked for back in the day, I thought it might be quite nice just to kind of find out where your journey with video games began. I mean, do you remember what initially got you into video games or when you first saw one? Uh, yeah, I started uh, right at the very beginning, actually, with uh, <laughs> with uh, the old-fashioned um, TV games uh, that we used to have in the 70s. So, you know, just basic... Uh, it's a very basic one. I think it was called, uh, I think it was called Acetronic, maybe or something. It was something Tronic, anyway. And it, it had uh, pong and uh, you know football and basketball. It was just those ones with the little slider panels going up and down. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, my mom bought me it for. Uh, for Christmas one year, I think uh, this was at the time of like Grandstand and Binatone, and I don't know, I don't know if you guys know any of that stuff. Yeah, right, of but, course. You know, 
Yeah, they were very minimalistic, but it was. I think the fact that you could actually do something on on the TV and manipulate it was just magical, wasn't it? Oh, it was just amazing. When you could plug something in the back, and it wasn't like a, it wasn't a, a, it wasn't a telly signal or something. You could actually use the telly for something completely different, right? So, what I got, I got obsessed with it. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then as those moved up, I moved up with them, uh, moving on to uh, to like a binatone. I think that my favorite on that was uh, was the, the the motorcycle one where you could jump over the buses. <laughs> So I used to sit there for hours on end, jumping over buses on a on a on an an eight bit motorbike, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so and it was kind of, you know, I loved it, right? It got into my bloodstream, right? And of course, you know, I went to Latari twenty six hundred, right? You know, we all we all went there, right? We all remember that with the fake wood paneling and the crappy version of Space Invaders that we just played for hours on end. Um, but uh, it really it really flared up for me when the Spectrum came out. I was uh, I was in secondary school and I was interested in computers, but the reason why I was interested in computers was uh, I was really curious how they actually made the video games. So you know I uh, I uh, I got really into it. I, I built an Acorn Atom because you could buy it in kit form. Yeah, of course. Um, and that was the forerunner of the BBC Micro. So yeah, so I actually. Uh, <laughs> burn my fingers soldering boards together to actually make it. And when it worked, it was incredible. And it had a whole whopping, like, 2K of memory, right? So I'd sit there and type in listings from magazines, and uh, <laughs> and then they wouldn't work, right? You'd have to debug it for, like, hours and hours and hours, and then you'd just get fed up with it. So, uh, But I used to uh, I used to go to uh, Bugbite in Old Hall Street. I went to Liverpool University, right. and it uh, used to pop into Bugbite in uh, Old Hall Street. And they were one of the very first uh, proper video game publishers, you'd say, you know. And uh, when I walked in, I thought it would be all, like, you know, fantastic and sci-fi and brilliant. And it was just a bunch of grumpy middle-aged blokes with, uh, <laughs> with early PCs on desks groaning at each other <laughs> and i came in and it was a tape that wouldn't load on my uh on my atom i think it was a fruit machine actually believe it or not and uh, the guy just said oh yeah there's a bin over there help yourself and i was like there's loads of tapes in here and he goes yeah just take as many as you want it's not a problem man so wow. so i walked out of there and uh they, they found out i was at liverpool union i was studying computers and i was programming <laughs> they offered me a job there and i was like are you nuts right you can't you can't make any money out of this this is insane, right? So, uh, so I turned down Bug Bite, which I still can't believe to this day I did, and uh, I became a process control engineer. So I went away from playing video games to actually building chemical plants uh, on computers. And uh, so that's what I did, right? And I worked all over the world. I worked in Canada, I worked in Austria, I worked in Germany, I worked in France. Uh, I had a right old laugh, really enjoyed it. It was like Lego for big kids, right? But what did I end up doing? I ended up writing an offline simulation system, which was pretty much a game. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the the company I uh, I worked for, I split off with some engineers. We formed our own company, and we set up in the UK because it was easiest to do it. It was uh, we were working internationally, but the UK was very flexible uh, back in the in the eighties to uh, late eighties, early nineties, and they were very flexible. So, uh, so I set up and I moved into South Harrington Building. And I had uh, an office in there for the the main office, and I had a separate office for development with there were some guys working in there. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, Cygnosis moved in, so I became friendly with some of the guys at uh, at Cygnosis, and uh, it caught the attention of Jonathan and Ian. And in the meantime, um, the uh, there was a bit of a recession kicked in, and the chemical industry kind of dropped back down 
and stopped spending so much money on expanding plants. And uh, I had to fold the company. We had to fold the business. So I worked with two German guys, and they were just like, hey, you know what? We're going back to Germany. We're done. So Ian and Jonathan, they uh, they knew I was in the building. They knew me, of course. And they, they uh, I asked them if they wanted to buy my furniture. And they were like, yeah, we'll take the furniture, and we'll also take the office space, and we'd like to take you. <laughs> <laughs> Three so for the price like, of one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so there you go. That was a that was a very long-winded answer, wasn't it? You actually <laughs> answered like our question. next four questions. That was incredible. <laughs> I, I love it when you do the job for us. It's great. <laughs> hey, no problem, boys. You just sit back, relax, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll take care of this. I love the fact you talked about the Acorn Atom as well, because you know, obviously, like today, you know, kids might build their own PCs and stuff, but you know, nothing about nothing like getting a soldering iron out and actually doing it from scratch, was <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, there's a difference between putting a PC together and actually soldering in a circuit board <laughs> absolutely amazing so where we're at now is you've gone to Signosis. so what did those guys get you doing what kind of games did they get you working on straight away were you a bit out of your depth or did you just kind of like straight away feet under the desk knew what you were doing no well okay number one i've never been out of my depth and, and i'm a firm believer in fake it till you make it so <laughs> even even if you can't do it say you can and then figure it out right so uh so but uh jonathan and ian were uh they were, they were very, very smart guys, right? Very, very sharp guys. Uh, and 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 Jonathan knew that there was a government grant available for um, for uh, simulators that that did uh, industrial training. The idea was that we'd go to the DTI as it was then, which was Department of Trade and Industry, and uh, ask them for a grant to make uh, a simulation um, system that was. Uh, was based around factories and factory building, but we'd do it via video games. So we'd make a video game. So, you know, Jonathan and Ian were like, look, we've got all this video game technology sitting here. We've got all these engines and all these tools. Why don't we put it together and make it, you know, less of a game and more of an educational thing and, and maybe the government will throw some money at it. So uh, so I was like, yeah, that sounds great, man. That sounds really good. Let's give that a go. So uh, uh, a week later, after it had uh, been allocated a desk, and a, and a shiny new Mac. <laughs> I was on my way down to London to meet with uh, with the head of the DTI, which was kind of entertaining in and of itself. Um, and they were up for it; they were interested in it. But it kind of, you know, it floundered a little bit, right? Because you know, all government-related things have have a life of their own, and it's not usually a very active life. So, uh, so I came back and I said, look, you know, these guys are, you know, they're humming and hiring. They're going to cut a check, but it's going to take two years. You know, what, what do you want to do? And I thought they were going to get rid of me. And they were like, well, we, we like having you around and you're a good guy and you, you fit in really well with everyone here. You know, is there any part of this that you, you like the look of? And I was like, well, you know, you're not really doing that much internationally. You know, you, you, you're legendary in the UK and everyone's like super excited about it. But, you know, the home of video games is Japan now. And mm. you're not really making an impact there. And on the state side, they had like a small distribution deal um, with a, with a distributor who eventually became Signosis US. Actually, uh, great guy called Jerry Walosenko, and he had a guy working for him. Um, he had a couple of guys working for him. I see. And 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 uh, <laughs> Keith was there was their sales guy, Keith Adams. What a fantastic guy he was. Still one of the best salesmen I've ever met. Right. But um, anyway, I digress. So I said, look, you know, what about if we uh, if we license into those territories? And they were like, yeah, you know, licensing's good. That you know, we know a licensing agent, blah blah blah. And that agent was Jan Putnam, 
And um, so um, I got to work with Jan Putnam and, and she's, you know, she's brilliant, right? Brilliant with doing deals with Konami and, and, and Fujitsu. And I mean, like a host of these companies that were, that were working really well um, on, on a, more on a, a culty type level in, in Japan, right? They were, they were, they were like super niche, you know, like the, things like the FM towns, right? From Fujitsu. Mm. What a crazy idea that machine was, right? So, <laughs> But um, so so that's what I started doing. So uh, so I was actually the one who was responsible for getting Lemmings onto the most number of gaming platforms. I think still ever in the history of video games. I think maybe Tetris beat it out in the end actually, because now you can get Tetris on everything, can't you? But at the time, you know, we, we we Lemmings was coming through and it was looking really great, and we got it onto everything, man. I tell you, we could have got it onto a Casio watch. I would have put it on there. But, <laughs> but probably in a microwave, if, uh, if you tried it. And you know what? How many of those would you have sold, right? <laughs> I'd have bought a Lemmings watch. I wouldn't have been great. You'd never be bored on the train or in a traffic jam ever again, right? But, but um but yeah, and, and you know what? The pixels were so small, you could probably have done it. Yeah. Um, and then Team 17 would have ripped us off and done Worms Watch. But, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, we, we digress. Um, so yeah, so that's what I kind of started doing. And it, it it snowballed, right? You know, it just, you know, did one deal, did another deal. Got to work with uh, Hank Rogers and Bulletproof Software, which is still one of the best names for a video game company I've ever, ever heard, right? Bulletproof Software, mm. brilliant. And so that was, uh, that was Super NES Shadow of the Beast, believe it or not. That was... Uh, which the you know what there's a whole program about making of Super NES Shadow of the Beast if you ever want to do it one time. That yeah. was when Tony Parks came out of the test room and became a producer and actually physically threatened people with violence to get the job done. Really, some really. Wow. Oh god, there's some funny <laughs> stories behind that. Man, so. I mean, I remember yeah. seeing that game for the first time, Shadow of the Beast, and it was that it was that parallax scrolling that I think everyone kind of was you know jaw droppingly impressive for the time. Do you remember the first time you saw that game then? And were, were you a fan of it? Uh, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I remember um, a guy a guy who I eventually well, I employed him in my engineering company, uh, which was Procon Systems, which is you know we, we put a lot of thought into that because we worked in process control and we made some systems for it, so we called it Procon Systems. And uh, one of the guys who came to work for me was actually uh, Mike Anthony. I don't know if you know who Mike Anthony is, but uh, he uh, he w- he was started his uh, programming for me in his sandwich year at Liverpool uh, Liverpool Uni or Liverpool Poly. I think it was, I think it was Liverpool Poly. And um, at the end of his sandwich year was when we closed it down. And he went back and finished his studies. And then in the year in between, I'd worked at. Uh, at Cygnosis, so uh, I offered him a job and he came and worked for us. He was one, he was the main programmer for Call of Duty for Treyarch, uh, and his brother Dave Anthony. I actually, <laughs> I actually, I was like the child catcher from Titty Titty Bang Bang. He had a younger brother who was uh, at home with him, and he was coding on the Amiga, and he was part of uh, one of the you know like the little coding groups they used to have that did the little demos and then the demo had, scenes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how he started out, and I was like, oh, kid's got a bit of talent, right? So. Uh, so I, I I captured him and brought him on board, but Mike came in, and uh, so through Mike, uh, while I was working, when I was working for me at the engineering company, I mean, you know, I was only a couple of years older than him. It wasn't, you know, I was I started young, and um, so I used to uh, used to go and play golf with him uh, at the weekend, and. Uh, Go back to his, and he had an Amiga, and his brother was nuts about the Amiga, right? This is like, you know, Dave Anthony, who eventually became the main director of Treyarch, right? Mm. Uh, and and Dave was was nuts about it. He's like, look at this, look at this, look at that. And they had, like, 
he, he was uh, he was mad at breaking uh, protection and, and copying discs, right? So they had like hundreds of discs, which I've probably just dropped him in it now, but never mind. <laughs> so he was playing he was playing Shadow of the Beast, and like you say, right, that parallax scrolling, yeah. you're just like, oh man, that looks so good. And Dave's sitting there going, oh yeah, well it's got like it's got multiple sprite planes built in, so it's just like really easy. Look at this, and then he showed me a <laughs> demo of his, and I was like, oh my god, that looks fantastic. And he's like, oh, it's just that easy. Look, you just put these planes on here and it's already built in. It's that easy. I was like, oh, okay. All right. So, uh, so yeah. So and when, I, when, I, when, when I saw it, I was like, oh, man, i got to get an Amiga. So I got an Amiga. And, <laughs> and then the amount of effort I put into the engineering went down dramatically. And the amount of time I stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning drinking brandy, playing games on the Amiga, went up proportionally. So, yeah. <laughs> that's it that's it that would that was my uh, that was my introduction it was like there was obertus and blood money and there was there was loads wasn't there right nitro you know there was they just kept on making great games right just fantastic games with uh, shadow of the beast 2 correct me if i'm wrong you ended up being the project lead on that did that come with like a certain weight and pressure for it to you know be as good as the original you know it was already in process when uh, when i got involved i mm. got involved in kind of uh more on the on the biz dev side of it right okay. so business development i mean you know it obviously <laughs> i was oh god biz dev right biz dev jesus biz dev <laughs> well a lot of people forget that if biz dev didn't do its work you wouldn't get your wages and none yeah. of the products would get made right so but I, I, you know i am a, i am a, I qualified as a programmer i am a programmer at heart right uh, I, 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 I knew my way around dpaint really well uh, as you'll see from my fantastic graphics on theater of death um uh, and, and actually, that's true. You know, the the, the head spinning off and all the blood spurting out and stuff when the soldier gets shot. I actually did all that in deep paint. Oh wow! And, uh, so, I know, right? <laughs> but it's it was fun. It was fun, right? There was a computer sitting at my desk, and I could either work on deep paint or write a seven page contract to send out via fax. Right? What do you think I'm going to do? <laughs> right? So, so, um, so I, I pretended to to do some business development, but but that's the that's the side I got more involved with, and then it became more management of the project from the point of view of like making the deadlines and sending out the demos and sending out the stuff and everything. So that's how I got involved. Um, I used to, uh, back in the day, I used to be a smoker and I used to have the odd cigarette with uh, with uh, Jim Bowers. Do you remember you guys? Remember yeah, Jim yeah. Bowers? So uh, Jim used to sit closest to the toilet. So you'd go and make a coffee in the little kitchen, go and have a pee, and then I'd come out and Jim's smokes would be sitting on his desk and I'd like – sit down and I'd have a smoke and I actually watch him I've got I got to watch him I got the privilege of watching him handcraft the uh, animation you know where the big uh, big flying creature comes in and rips the roof off and snatches the baby and stuff mm. remember, do you remember that? yeah do, yeah so I got to I got to sit there and uh, be uh, be smoking a silk cut uh, <laughs> watching him actually handcraft those graphics right and you you, you kind of it's quite humbling, really, when you when you realise how talented those guys were, right? You know, Garv and Jeff and like like all the guys who were there, Mike. You know, all, all the guys who were the artists there, they were so incredibly talented. And you know, everyone was having a laugh and messing around and you know knocking about. You know, you had Nick Berkham in there, didn't you? Mike Ellis and like you know, I mean, the whole crew was just fantastic. But every one of those people were super, super talented, right? I mean, the Mega CD version as well of Shadow of the Beast 2, that was really impressive. You know, when CD-ROM technology was coming out, I remember that had, like, impressive speech audio samples. You had full motion video on that on there as well. I mean, was that, like, a lot of work to do back then? I imagine there must have been quite a lot of effort to make a CD-ROM game. 
Uh, no, surprisingly enough, no. Uh, you would think that it would like you suddenly you've got a team of forty people, right? Mm. But it was the same number of people, but just the the quantity of frames that could be stored went up exponentially. So that meant that like the everything that went into it could be could be of such much higher quality. I mean, when when the guys were were making this stuff, it was super super high quality, and then it was like kind of filtered down so it would you know it would fit in the memory space. So suddenly those restrictions were taken away but the talent level of the people who were working on it was so good that that you know you can you could go back and look at the you can look at the list in there right and most of those people were ancillary workers right i would say the core team was probably like seven or eight people really and 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 it was that good right the stuff they were making was that good right and all the animation that they couldn't fit on you know the 27 discs that it came on an Amiga version all that stuff went in. So, like, the artists were really happy, right? Everybody who did something, everybody who made something, it actually went in. And that was uh, that was really cool, you know? They got, a, they got a lot out of it. They got a lot of... Um, I think they got a lot of pleasure out of it as well. And they started to realize it. But the actual technology behind it... Uh, and, 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 and let's praise his name, for he is the lord of all video games, John Gibson. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Gibbo was uh, Gibbo was the one who was working with uh, Gibbo and Kenny Everett were kind of like the, the mad scientists in the back room and uh, they'd got to play around with the uh, the FM towns so uh, the the planet side demo that they did on the on the FM towns and and basically Fujitsu were, were paying Psygnosis to do high end streaming videos from a from a cd-rom and that was you know it, it went in vertically on the front of the machine i don't know if you guys ever had the pleasure of seeing it. what a beautiful machine that fm towns was i remember seeing but, that demo on the cd tv as well didn't they that the, the planet side one that's right there. yes yeah. yes it, it was on the cd tv mm. uh i think it went on the uh the sega cd as well actually mm. i think it was on there it, it, it made its way to a lot um uh, you know eventually it became scavenger 4 Right. Okay. I was going to ask actually if it ever came into a full game. Yeah, it did. Yeah, uh, but I mean, you know, when when they were when they were making the game, of course, I was doing the licensing, right? I mean, we're jumping ahead a bit now, but I was doing the licensing, and like I'd like traded on the strength of the Planetside demo for such a long time. I, you remember the, the it had the flying over the desert landscape. It had the guy in the in the the spaceship, and he was like launching his missiles. I don't know if you remember it like really well but it, it was very cinematic it was very anime really if you, if you think about it right you know everyone at the time was heavily influenced by akira right the guys mm. all loved akira right? oh my god akira 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 so of course they wanted to get that look and feel in there but when they do that planet side demo if you went to akihabara i swear to god every other store had that running in the window right it was it was incredible and i was just like when, when <laughs> i was like look man you know when you're making scavenger foot why are you calling it scavenger four and like the marketing department like oh we need to call it something snappy and so i was like just call it planet side if you call it planet side it'll sell a million units in japan on the first day and they just they wouldn't listen right they just wouldn't listen i was like ah, crap and it wasn't it wasn't for any like vanity reasons or something i just wanted an easy life and get a bonus off all the sales it would make. <laughs> so with Shadow of the Beast, it's a notoriously hard game, both the first and second one. Was there any playtesting with them, or were they just kind of like put out there just for everybody to kind of work it out? I mean, here's the problem, right? You know, you've got 
you know, you got people of the caliber of Nick Beckham and Mike Ellis, and, and you know, I mean, you know, Law was in there. I mean, there was so many of the guys in it, and the test room was fantastic, by mm. the way. It's you know, so what a talent pool that was, right? Those guys were in there. You know, Tony Park came out of that. Law Swag came out of that. I mean, Phil Gaskell came out of that. There were so many people who were so good. And, you know, they were young and starting out and they were just sitting there testing their stuff. But those guys were so good at the games that they played. They'd be looking for bugs, but nobody was really paying attention to the difficulty curve. Because, yeah. like, you know, if you played any game against them, they would kick your ass, right? You could sit there and practice for hours and hours and hours. They'd just walk in, pick up a joystick, go bip, bap, bap, and you're done. Mm. And you're just like, oh, man. Watching, watching, watching Mike Ellis and and Richard Brown play Street Fighter against each other <laughs> was, was something to behold, right? It was, <laughs> and and you know people laugh and joke about it, and they're like, "Oh, are you just making games and stuff." It's like, man, if you knew the skill level and the technology level that went into that. So getting back to your original question, um, yes, there was lots of testing. Yes, there was lots of bug fixing. No, there wasn't a lot of play balancing because the people who tested it were so damn good that it didn't make a bad. They would miss difference. that balance and it would just yeah. they would fly but through then, it. <laughs> but then you would think that that would backfire. I mean, years later, when you got into the into the console generation, right? If a game was too hard, people would just lose interest and mm. like put the controller down and go play something else, right? But the, because the games were so hard on the Amiga. It got that cult following. It was like, well, if you, you know, people, oh, it's too difficult. And they say, oh, you, the, the mates would start laughing at them. They'd throw stuff at me. You, you know, it's true, right? Yeah. If you could if you could get through one of those Cygnosis games, man, you had some kudos behind you, right? You know, mm. they were like, whoa, that's like, you've got mad skills, man. We love you. You know, it's like, okay. So I think that really worked. And, and, and there was a, I think there was a, an available mantle in the marketplace for a company that made very high quality, very technical games that were also incredibly difficult to play, right? I, I imagine that now, right? <laughs> yeah, I think we've had a bit of a resurgence with it recently, but yeah, you're completely right. The last kind of 25 years of console gaming's been very hold your hand, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, I, and that has its place, right? I yeah. Mean, but that's the difference between you know a niche market and a mass market. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you know, I, I get that, right? But you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, I got a I got a sixteen year old son. You know, I've showed him some of the stuff that I worked on. So I mean, and my kids, right? You know, they they like they have no idea what I did, right? Just dad, and he used to make video games, and he does he works in VR now, and he works in tech now. But but like you know, when I, when I've showed them some of the stuff that we that we used to make, first of all, they can't stop laughing, <laughs> and then and then after they finish laughing because of like how rudimentary and how, how how old it is, right? Yeah. They start to realize, hey, you know what? There's some really good stuff here, right? So, uh, but he's you know he's playing he's playing games on his phone that like you know we could only dream of that processing power when we were actually making that stuff, right? But you know he has a he has a real admiration for that stuff. But I think I think you're right in the the hardcore stuff is really starting to come back now, right? Yeah. It's really there's a there's a the, but I think that's because the mass market appeal is is waning right you know mm. you, you're either you know a casual gamer now is is playing just you know some some crappy game on their phone but it's it's hooked them and they're repeatedly playing it yeah and i think that the hardcore gamers are going they're going vertically up right they're like okay what's next right what's what's the next challenge right so so i think that's a that's an interesting dynamic in the market now compared to the market then right when everyone who played was a hardcore gamer right 
You were either all in or you weren't in at all, right? Even if you played Pac-Man, you had to clear all the maximum level sheets and get right to the end to see the special animation, right? Yeah, it wasn't just casual. It was you had to be the best. It was it was high scores, wasn't it, back yeah. in the day? And that's exactly it, right? Yeah. And that's the way it's always been. But the interesting thing for me, having worked in like you know lots of different areas and 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 you know that the shell that was my games background always came with me i always you know it's not long before i pop it out and pop it on my back right because games are just brilliant they're just brilliant but the that whole thing that we went through about 10 12 years ago of like gamification mm. you know, like gamification 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 and you had all these experts and people talking you know i'd sit there and look at them and i'm like you have no idea what gamification really is do you and so uh, one of the guys there was a there was a conference over here in the states and it was uh, it was very dry man it was about um i think it was about like transaction confirmations or something on 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 oh my god you just lose the will to live in those things right <laughs> and this guy was like yeah we're, we're changing the system now to like bring you in gamification and we're doing this we're doing that we're doing this and in the end i got really annoyed with it and i said look you gotta stop right there's two elements to gamification one is stickers if you give someone a sticker they're really happy if you give them a special picture that only they have they really love it it's amazing so there's your bonus right there's your bonus reward right and it's as simple as a sticker but it's a badge of honor it shows how cool you are mm-hmm. and two is a high score table you put a high score table on anything anywhere and people will be drawn to it like flies to a to one of those little zappers right i mean it's, it's, seriously so yeah you know go, going back to your point the whole high scores thing yeah that's a monster right that that drives everything because that shows absolutely you're better than anyone else that's why some idiot will pay 250 quid to have his three letters of his initials on the top 10 spots on any arcade machine in the world. <laughs> well, you mentioned Theatre of Death before, and that was an incredible game. I mean, how much influence did that take from games like Cannon Fodder and XCOM? The one that that, that really caught my attention was uh, Platoon. Do you remember Platoon? Yes. Mm. So that, I, I looked at that and I went, well, there's a missed opportunity. I mean, it was fun to play, right? But you were like, there was so much more you could do. Um, but I swear down that Theatre of Death even though it was kind of low key, it had only, you know, it had one artist, one programmer, and it had, had one test resource, right? That, that was it, right? It was kind of like, okay, well, you know, we'll do it, we'll put it out, and it's, it's you know, Dave Anthony's proving ground, right? But, but it led to so many different things that came after, so many games that came after that, right? It's really incredible. I got, you know, I, I was in business with uh, with Tim Page for uh, we had a we had a company together here in Reno. Uh, we had a studio here in Reno actually called Five Thousand Feet. And we we were together for well, a good eight years. But I knew Tim from back in the Philips days. You remember when the Philips CDI? Yes. Came yeah. Out? <laughs> and Tim was the he was the head of technology for Philips for uh, for the CDI. Great guy, wonderful guy, absolutely talented. And our paths via a twists of fate met many 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 years later and we actually you know we lived not far from each other here in reno in nevada but uh but 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 tim uh he, he said to me look you know the guys who made uh command and conquer they loved absolutely loved theater of death and they all knew it and they all played it right the thing about games is and the thing you have to understand is it's not that people rip people off it's that they get inspired by something that went before 
and take it in a different direction or take it further forward. And I, and I always remember about the industry, nobody ever was precious about something. If you made it and put it out and it inspired someone to make something else, you were just really happy, right? Yeah. Mm. You know, I'd be, like Gibbo now, right? Gibbo, bless him, he's like living out in Thailand and he's like, you know, he's <laughs> people who there probably don't even know who he is, right? But John Gibson, he must be like the grandfather of so many games that are actually played by everyone now today, right? And I think that the people don't know that history is quite criminal, but they really should, right? Because, you know, when you, you start thinking about Molomol and Stonkers and Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and all these games, right? You can draw a direct line back from so many top-line video games now, directly back to those things, which were actually original and unique. Well, we're interviewing John tomorrow morning, so I'm sure you've got some, uh, some are stories. You serious? Yeah, we are oh, actually oh, from oh, Thailand. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know what? You should have interviewed me and Gibbo together, right? Oh, that'd have been on that. Yeah. <laughs> tell Gibbo that I still love him dearly, right? <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I mean, get back to Theatre of Death, Mike Clark. Um, we actually did the um, our, our intro music for this podcast, actually. Great guy, Mike. And there's a photo of him aged uh, about 19 in the titles of that game. Are there any other kind of uh, Easter eggs hidden in there that you can remember? Yeah, there was, there was quite a few of us digitised in there, wasn't yeah. there? We are actually in there. You'll find us. Um, there was the there was the London bus on the, on the moon. <laughs> that, do you, don't, so we had a troop transporter in there, right? And uh, I think the main one was uh, we ripped off the, uh, the Eagle transport from space 1999 but uh <laughs> just just for a laugh it was uh it was at the time of like the um the sunday sport the sunday sport became like a really big newspaper in the uk and uh you like it, 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 it i mean it wasn't it wasn't what it eventually became which basically you had to hold it vertically so the blood could drip out of it right <laughs> but, but but it did have you know, a few saucy photos and some crazy stories in there and one of them was um, was wreckage of a London bus found on the moon. And so that story came up, and uh, I said to Dave, hey, what about if we, like, transport the troops around, around the moon on the bus? And he's like, yeah, brilliant, it's in, it's in. <laughs> so I've got to tell you guys that the amount of effort and work and ingenuity that went into that game was absolutely stunning, right? It really was, yeah. Even down to resource management, right? You know, Dave, Dave still talks about that now, right? You know, a big influence on him going forward, putting resource management into a game to change the dynamic of a game, right? Another game you worked on was uh, Wiz and Liz, uh, which is another great title. Once again, notoriously hard, notoriously fast. Did people request for a slower version of that? <laughs> yeah, and they mostly had American accents. But... <laughs> But uh, the whole thing with with that, I mean, you know, that's that's you know, the, the illustrious and wonderful Martin Chudley, right? What a talented guy Martin was. But uh, uh, that, that it, you know, he started off with Killing Game Show, and and you know, that was kind of like it was like, all right, that's unique, that's interesting, there's some good stuff going on there. But the the Wiz and Liz thing was kind of it was the Signosis thing to kind of break into that. Uh, console sector it was specifically designed from the ground up mm. to be a, a, a genesis or a snes title right you know it, it, that's exactly what it was designed to be but also to add a little bit of spin on it and and make it you know it was all fluffy and cutesy and everything right but that had you know that had a core of steel running through it that game right you, mm. that was a hard game to play mm. um but yeah we got we got complaints on the side on on ironically on on the u.s side yeah it was like no it's too difficult it's too difficult and this was the distributors right it's like it's too difficult it's too difficult it needs like you know and 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 you know that's where that's where the whole level 
you know, do you want to be on easy? Do you want to be on medium? Do you want to be on hard? Do you want to be on pro? Right. That eventually crept in and came in. But that, you know, in, in the day, it wasn't an option, was it? Right. It was like a painting. It was done. And that was it. And it went out. Right. It was yeah. done. Right. Um, but over in over in Europe, ironically, the inverse was true. Right. People loved it because it was so hard. Right. Yeah. They liked the things, right. And, 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 and people who want an easy game, you've got to really question their logic right because if it's easy and you just blaze through it and you've completed it well you're done right whereas if it's rock hard and you keep coming back to it every time you play it you'll get more value for money out of that game right yeah so anyway i drifted from where you asked so so yeah wizard liz was it was it was a planned event right And, and and martin was asked right can you come up with something that would fit the bill and when he came in with these like you know rabbits and, and, and wizards and, a, and an old witch just was just looking at him going what the hell is wrong with you <laughs> what what, what is, this is it and he was like oh, yeah it's fantastic brilliant but it was like all right and, and, and fair play to to you know to, to Ian Hedrington right Ian's like nope if that's what he wants to do that's what he should do right because he was always like that right Ian H was no matter how crazy the idea or what he wanted to do his door was open and he would always give you a shot right well now we're into that console era I mean you also worked with um Disney on the uh, Mickey Mania game for the Mega Drive um, with Sony. Um, did Disney have a lot of say on the promotion of that game, and were they quite precious about that? Do you? Disney are always precious about everything, including how you write your name on your badge when you sign into Disney. They're kind of like they're, they're super precious in for for their marketing department. But you know, back in the day, you just used to go, oh, "Okay, well, we'll make it all comply with that," and then you just go away and do what you wanted to do anyway. But um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, John Burton, right? It was uh, John Burton and Traveller's Tales, and because mm. uh, they started out with uh, with Alundra. Do you remember Alundra? Yeah, brilliant. That game. was the yeah. that was their first uh, that was their first game, I think. Oh, was it? Yeah, they were in, they were based in Southport. Yeah, you. I mean, Andy was a bit of a miserable guy, right? <laughs> the, the first time we flew him out, we flew, I flew him out to LA. <laughs> that I think that was for Mickey Mania, wasn't it? I think that was meetings for Mickey Mania. Uh, we flew him out to LA, and uh, uh, Steve Ryden. It was Steve Ryden brought them out. Those two, those two, which was the entirety of Traveller's Tales, came out to Los Angeles. And I had to hire a bigger car because I was picking, I was picking those two and Steve riding up, and uh, so I hired a Lincoln Town car. <laughs> I don't Lincoln Town cars these, these massive. It's like a boat with with like four tires in, at the corners, right? These things were massive. I don't know. Don't know if you've ever seen a Lincoln Town no, car. No, I've never. Seen, I'm going to have to Google one now. I think. Oh my god! <laughs> you should look look up Lincoln Town car from like 1990. Two and and it'll blow your mind, right? It, it 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 looked like um it looked like the Duke in Escape from New York, right? It was one yeah. of those massive pimp cars. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I picked them up. I picked them up at LAX, and they came through. And this was this was when you could like drive your car right up to the to the sliding doors at LAX, right? And they just they're just walking out, looking all over the place, just <laughs> just that like victim written all over them, and you're just like, wow, you guys. This is amazing, right? So, so, so I pick them up in this Lincoln Town car, and they get in, and I like the trunk in the thing for putting the luggage in. It was like a, the trunk was like a swimming pool, right? It was massive. So we put all the luggage in. They get in, and we're driving, and it was actually raining. It was one of the one of the few days when it rained in LA, and uh, we, we were staying at the Century Plaza Hotel, and I turned off. It would have been Santa Monica Boulevard onto Century Plaza Avenue, and uh, 
sent the thing into a 360, right? Just was turning the corner, put my foot down a little too hard. I was showing off because I was like, <laughs> yeah, man, I, I'm all LA now, baby, right? And sent the thing into a 360. Scared the shit out of John and Andy. Right? <laughs> terrified them, right? Steve Ryden was looking at me. Steve's like, it was it was really entertaining. It was really funny. But uh, one of the things we did was we went to a meeting and Andy didn't have to go. So we went and got a haircut and it cost him $70. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. <laughs> Back in '92, right? Yeah, life in LA. <laughs> Seriously, Andy, Andy nearly died, man. And and John could John Burton just couldn't stop laughing, right? John was laughing his ass off at him. And really, it it, it wasn't worth seventy dollars. I've got to be honest. <laughs> there, there was zero improvement, right? But yeah, so yeah, Mickey Mania was done with uh, with, with 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 that kind of. Uh, that was kind of like that bridging between licensing, licensed characters, movie studios, and IP. You know, video games being brought in as like, you know, a, a, an important partner. You know, they could say there's like 10 or 15 percent of the revenue. Now it can like, you know, a good video game will outgross a, a movie. Right. Yeah. yeah. But but back in the day, it was like it was kind of seen as like the young upstart. Like you were you were brought in and kind of hidden behind the curtain and then revealed like, and here we have the future. These guys know what they're doing. And then you'd push a few sprites around, and people would buy them, and it'd be good. But uh, yeah, there was—I uh, think there was a Sega CD version of that as well, wasn't there? That's there was, yeah, yeah. Mickey Mania is another one that came out on everything. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. we did. Yeah. Well, I remember that—that that got us kind of. That was part of the whole uh, thing of working with uh, ImageSoft. It was ImageSoft then. It, f- before that, it was CBS Games, and I think their only employee was Alan Becker actually. Mm. Um, and then Rich Robinson uh, joined, and they had like a few members in there uh kelly flock came later um but but those guys those guys over in the states that's that's how i got introduced because ImageSoft was part it was cbs games which was owned by became owned by sony when they bought out cbs then they changed it to sony ImageSoft and uh and sony electronic publishing company so there was scpc which was like the more pc uh, CD-ROM magazine, PC game kind of thing, and then ImageSoft was like purely consoles. It was the SNES and the Genesis, and it was kind of that was where the the main thrust was. And so we got to work with those guys, and, and what wonderful, lovely people they were, right? I mean, Rich Robinson, what a, what a fabulous guy Rich Robinson was, right? Just fabulous. I mean, he had a he had a dodgy Tom Selleck mustache, but <laughs> other than that, right, he was. Just, just wonderful. And he did so much for so many people, and they don't even know how much he did for them, right? You know, but that was where that whole Sony buyout came from, right? That's that that was point of contact, right? That was it. That's how got to meet Olaf Olafsson, got to meet Tommy Mottola, got to work at Sony Music, got to work at Columbia TriStar, got to work with Mark Kaplan and all those guys. And the, you know, I was pretty heavily involved there. You know, I even had an office on the lot and an office in Sony Music Building down in Santa Monica, and it was just kind of. At the time, it was just kind of like, well, okay, this is the next thing we're doing, right? And years later, I've looked back on it and I've gone, oh, my God, right? It was like so amazing, right? So stunning, so incredible. But everybody who was there, it was just like a big giant gang, everybody together. And you're just having a laugh, right? Just having a laugh, right? There's no no, no two bones about it, right? You, you know, One minute you're in a meeting at Disney and the next minute you're going down to Long Beach to take a look at the Spruce Goose, right? True story. <laughs> so, I mean, so it, it was kind of like... On the one hand, you were all wide-eyed and thinking, oh, this is brilliant. And on the other hand, you're like, well, this is just normal everyday life, right? This is what we do now. 
And the technology as well was coming on so quickly then. I mean, I remember another Psygnosis game that really impressed me, and visually at least, was a Microcosm. I remember seeing that on like the, the 3DO as well, and that game just looked like something out of the future at the time. I mean, was it quite a big technical challenge with that title then? The cutscenes was what that was really about, mm. right? That was, you know, and that's, that's because all the artists in the video game sector are frustrated movie makers, right? You know, but like but Jim Jim Bowers went into special effects, right? You know, after they'd done their hackers and they put Wipeout in the in the movie, mm. he actually went in and became a special effects guy for movies, right? Paul Franklin, Paul Franklin's won two Oscars, right? A guy who used to have a desk opposite me has won two Oscars. So the the, the ability to actually make those the the green screen or blue screen uh, movies and like the stuff that went in and the cutscenes, I mean that's the stuff that's really really impressive, right? Microcosm itself as a game, yeah, you know, really, let's be honest, right? But the 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 thing that makes you think that it is such a giant technology feat is there's giant helicopters like landing on platforms and blokes with guns walking out and like actually talking to each other and acting and it looks like it's part of a movie, right? I'd never mm. seen anything like that before. Yeah, first time I saw it, I, I couldn't believe it. I was seeing a computer do that. And, and yeah. to be honest with you, I mean, that was one of those, again, where it was like, you know, they wanted to they wanted to make a movie, right? Yeah. You know, they wanted, they did. That's what they wanted to do. They really wanted to. And they're like, well, we think we can make a movie on this, like, tiny thing here and we can do this. And Ian Hedrington went, yep, yeah, okay. Yeah, go on. You know, and then, and then what, like, Five years, six years later, you've got the first full-length animated, you know, fully rendered uh, animated movie, right? You know, Toy Story didn't come out that long after it. No. We did these demo videotapes that we were sending out. I said, look, you know, we're making this technology. We're doing this cool stuff. Let's get it out there, right? So we actually, we went to Liverpool City Centre and bought the only Panasonic World Player that was available in, in the Northwest at the time. And uh, the world player, we could actually then make NTSC tapes, right? So then we could send videotapes to Japan and the States, right? Just, you know, the the guys were like, oh, my God, this is like finally we can show our stuff off, right? Because we used to have like wonky videotapes that we'd show all the time in the Mm. UK, right? And they'd be like, and then it'd eventually start, right? But we were denied the ability to do that because it was impossible to do with NTSC, right? So we made all these tapes and I sent them out and I sent them out to Konami, Namco, Fujitsu, sent them to Electronic Arts basically to say, Oi, boys, we're coming, you know, uh, sent them to, uh, actually, that was when, that was when Trip Hawkins was, uh, was, I think Trip Hawkins was still then about to do Set Sail on the 3D Ocean. Yeah. Um, so Trip got one of our videotapes and stuff. I'm, you know, I'm still friends with all these guys today, right? But one of the tapes I sent was to Rich Robinson at ImageSoft. And uh, that was the one, that was the one hook that that baited, uh, that baited the shark called Sony to come and bite down on us, right? And go, hey, these guys are interesting. We like these. But the cover I made for it, we had a four color photocopier, and one of the colors was brown. So the tube that he's going through, which is supposed to be an intestine, guess what color that was, right? So. It just looked like a big brown bum hole. <laughs> and that was actually the tape that directly led to Sony acquiring Psygnosis. Wow. And 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 making making and creating the whole PlayStation division and the whole PlayStation thing. 
How about that? That's incredible. <laughs> that is. That's that absolutely fantastic. On me. Could, I could have been in a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad it worked out for you in the end, Ian. Your business development department sent us a giant bumhole with a spaceship in it. Let's <laughs> buy these guys. <laughs> yeah, let's buy it straight away. <laughs> Probably look at that and go, well, anyone who's got the balls to do that's got to be pretty good. Right? They've, got to be, they've got to be off there, right? So. Fantastic. So yeah. by this point, we're obviously well and truly getting into like the 3d kind of realm of things um one of the big games Cygnosis had that kind of made the jump to 3d was lemmings were they kind of like sitting on that idea for a while and what was the reception like with that with lemmings 3d the lemmings 3d yeah lemmings 3d uh greg greg Dudley's finest moment right the, the the idea was going around that like uh playstation's gonna be cool it's gonna be fantastic yeah. it's gonna be awesome we can do all this stuff with it look at you know, and and you know they were like we're gonna we're gonna, it's gonna, we're gonna bring it in. We're gonna bring it in. You're gonna get to see it. You know, it's like, oh, there was only three dev kits in the world, right? And this was one of them. And they shipped it to Liverpool, and put it in South Harrington building, and they unveiled it, right? So, ah, it is. And it was a cannibalized Canon photocopy. You know, the big industrial Canon photocopiers mm. that you saw back in the day. Massive things. Which, which, it, which I think had like little people who'd scribe things and a big giant wheel inside it or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they were massive, right? It was the size of an industrial washing machine, right? And <laughs> and Ian Heavington was all proud and like he unveiled it. Like I think he actually did. He have a sheet over it. I think he actually had a sheet over it. Or maybe I'm just maybe I'm just fantasizing that. Maybe. But anyway, it was like here's the big reveal, and oh, it was behind a no, it was behind one of the uh, room dividers, right? It's like here it is. And it was hooked up to a monitor, and it was—I think it was running the dinosaur demo. Do you remember the dinosaur yeah. that you can go in three different directions, and he like add expressions and stuff, and and he goes, and this is it. I think it had like exhaust pipes and stuff, right? It was like so outrageous. <laughs> and I took a look at it, and it was like this—this this was the senior executive unveiling, and I said. I think if they want to sell some, it's going to have to be a bit smaller. <laughs> You're not going to fit that under your telly, are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Ian H was not amused, man. He was. Uh, it got a few titters around the room, but like he wasn't happy. But, but yeah. So when that came in, I think the whole thing of like the, you know, it wasn't parallax scrolling and plane based and stuff. It was actual full physical. We suddenly had Z depth, right? We suddenly had a real. Z line that we could work to, right? So X and Y, we had that down and it was brilliant, but now you had proper Z, right? Like everyone was going crazy. So there was ideas banded around of like what we could make, what could be in 3D, what could be, you know, quote 3D, right? And of course, you know, Lemmings was our cash cow, right? We, you know, it was, Lemmings was the game that built the company in a lot of ways, right? So it was like, well, we got to do Lemmings, right? And it was like, well, if you just do a standard 2D Lemmings, you know, how interesting is that? As it turns out, really bloody interesting because it's still addictive and a mm. great game to play. But it was like, uh, it was like, no, no, let's 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 make it 3D. Let's turn it into 3D. So, and that's kind of where it went. The thing about the game was, it, it was uh, it was mechanically awkward at first because you had to get your head into a into a 3D space. Which, you know, if you've been playing games the way we'd been playing games for so long, it was kind of hard to do, you know, that you can move the camera and the landscape and you. So there's like, there's three different axes there that, that and, it, and it, can't, it as an exercise in technical ability of the machine, it was brilliant. It was yeah. absolutely brilliant. I remember seeing but, it and being like, how the hell do you play this? But then when I got my head around it, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, clever. Yeah, but then don't forget, right, you know, you, you've got the option of, of 
a bunch of different games that are just like it's so immediate, right? And you just like they're just so cool, right? They're just brilliant. You just you've got them, you've got them going right there, and you're like, okay, you can go. Or you know, you got a more cerebral challenge like that. And I think it probably it probably came too early for the market. I think really, mm. to be honest with you, I think that's that should have been a second gen or even third gen title, really, that was kind of would find a home with with people who you know really got to grips and were looking for something different right i'm sure a lot of people went back and picked that thing up real cheap right and played it later on and went oh it's a brilliant game that right and it, and it really is the ultimate execution of lemmings if you think about it well there's a whole nice slew of other like impressive 3d games and obviously wipeout that we mentioned before and uh g police as well i remember that one using 3d hardware acceleration running like you know on pcs really really impressive back then i mean did you realize did that game feel like it was a bit of a 3d breakthrough g police yeah g police was uh g police was like the it was the the coming out party for for um for stroud right for or the bristol office as it was known right and they were like again a really talented bunch of guys down there right that was uh I'm not sure who they worked for. I can't remember now. Did they work for Mirasoft or did they work? They worked for someone, didn't they? It was a, it was a core group that came from another, another publisher, and it became like the, the Stroud office and uh, G Police when it was when they were kind of like showing it off. It was like wow, this is this is really something, right? Because it didn't look like it was, it didn't look like it was slapped together and a 3D element added. It really looked and felt like it was built around the 3d environment right and i think that's what that's what gave it a lot of um gave it a lot of cachet and and it, like stylistically it just looked fantastic right you know for me on the licensing side i was loving that because like it, it was such eye candy and i could sell so much other stuff off the back of it uh, in fact that was one of the titles that, that that went into the the softbank deal i think we did a we did a deal with softbank who've since gone on to become like you know Huge megacorp, right? Yeah. I, you guys know SoftBank. Yeah, right? yeah, massive, aren't they? So, well, I met Sonsan when SoftBank was, you know, when he was just a lowly multi-millionaire, right? And <laughs> and and he was really nice. I liked him a lot. I got on really well with him, and you know, we, we worked on a deal. I mean, he did a ten-title deal, and I think that was one of the titles that went in there. So he picked up a lot of stuff that went from the PlayStation, and that was in that crazy era when I was doing deals with Sega to create Manx TT for them for the Saturn. And then bring Wipeout and Destruction Derby across to the Saturn, and Sony, you know, they weren't really happy about that. But it was like, hey, you bought us as a software company. This is how we make money. We sell software, right? And we want our games on as many platforms as we can get them on, right? You know, if we could get it on the N64 and we could get it on the Saturn, we were doing it, right? So it was kind of that was a really interesting dynamic. I don't know if you guys know, but in the in the in the Wavertree building, uh, underneath the stairs behind reception, we had a full size Manx TT. Andy Mee shipped it into us. Oh god, wow! Because he was—I don't know—it was one of the older guys over in Japan, and, and Andy Mee was was working on the stuff over here, and Andy Mee was just not right. He was crazy, and uh, we did a deal with them, and I said, "Yeah, you know, we'll get we'll get Manx TT converted for you, and we'll do it, and then we'll convert these others." As a so it was a multi-title deal, and he's like, "Well, if you're doing Manx TT, would you would you like a Manx TT?" And I was like, "Hell yeah! Why why wouldn't we like a Manx TT machine?" <laughs> so they sent it up. And like they super stickered it with like massive Sega logos all over it and all over the back of it and all over the top of it. And I don't know if you guys remember how big those mics teeth, they were the size of a small living room, right? Those things were huge. And uh, so they brought it and they had to take the doors off on the, <laughs> on the freight side so they could get it in. And then they built it inside and put it all together and put it under the stairs. But 
the reason why Andy Mee did it, and he is a clever bugger, right? It was so funny. Was uh, he admitted to me about a year later? He said, "I only shipped you that because I wanted to have a giant Sega logo right behind the desk of uh, Sony's entrance." Clever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and we all used to play it, right? You know, John Rostron and I used to, we had we used to have the Manx TT challenge every every lunchtime, right? We'd go and we'd, we'd we'd go and have a go at each other on the Manx TT. So it was a uh, but and, you know external development when we were there was was just fantastic you know, i mentioned greg Dudley, a lovely lovely guy right and steve ryden and john rostron and, and and pete smith actually pete smith who's pretty high up there now right that's where he started out as well right so they were they were a great bunch they were a great bunch of people right so it kind of felt like the advertising budgets and stuff were getting a lot bigger then i think i read that g police had like a two and a half million dollar advertising campaign and colony wars as well i think you know they put a lot into that didn't they as well ah now colony wars right colony mm. wars uh, was was the birth child of uh, of myself and Mike Ellis. You guys, you guys must be familiar yes. with Mike. Ellis. It was not Mike, right? So, so uh, I we had a <laughs> we had a development team that was actually out in LA uh, working on projects uh, for um, for ImageSoft uh, or, or Sony Sony America. Was it SEA then? It might have been. I don't know. It, it was in that transition period, but they were like, well, you guys got all the talent and we're struggling over here. We need a development team over here. So they brought us over and we worked on a couple of games for them out there. And that team kind of got stranded out there. Had like Dave Beresford and Mike Anthony and Gavin Dodd uh, was in it. Um, and it kind of got, uh, it got a bit stranded out there. It got a bit isolated. So when we came back, the, the, everything had moved on and there was no real place for them. So we kept them as a team. And uh, so they were on. They were on my side of the building in Wavertree Technology Park. And of course, at the time, I was doing uh, all of licensing, most of external development, and had an internal development team as well. Right? It was kind of like a mini one-man industry kind of thing. Right? So, and the guys who worked there were were more or less the rejects from the from the rest of the of the of the development core in the company it was the guys who didn't fit in the guys who were a bit awkward the guys who were a bit strange and the ones who wouldn't drink the kool-aid of like the corporate structure that had been brought in right because you know you had enormously creative and talented people you're trying to fit them into a a corporate structure within 18 months right it's just ain't gonna work it's just not gonna work right so i kind of kept those guys to one side and it was kind of like the it was kind of like the romper room right it was like all right we'll just come up with some ideas right so we tried to do an updated version of rollerball um which didn't didn't really work out it could have been brilliant right it could have if you think about that right you remember the movie rollerball james khan and mm -hmm. you know imagine that in full 3d with the motorbikes and the the ball being shot out and the spike gloves and everything going around an arena right like a kind of like a, a roller derby kind of thing but killing people um, and I was like, yeah, that'd be brilliant. I thought that would do it. And then uh, Gavin Dodd came up with like a sideways scroll um, shoot, I think, like an, like an Iridium or something, you know, that, that kind of style of game, right? Yeah. Um, and and, and Mike, Mike was talking and was saying like, well, we need a 3D space shooter. There's nothing in that sector. There's nothing in there, right? And, you know, everybody loved Elite, right? Everybody was a huge Elite fan, right? It, 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 
Elite was one of those landmark games, wasn't it? Either you you played it or you were rubbish, right? And so uh, no one had ever forgotten Elite. But if you remember, most of Elite was like a bunch of pixels on the screen and a small wireframe in front of you. <laughs> oh, my God, right? You just like set off for another planetary system and then just leave it, go make a cup of coffee, have a poo, couple of cigarettes, come <laughs> back, and you might be landing if you were lucky, right? So I kind of, at the time uh, when we were in the States, one one of the programs that all everyone wanted to watch, all the boys wanted to watch, of course, was uh, Star Trek Voyager. Voyager had just started, and in the opening sequence of Voyager, it's it's actually quite beautiful. You go back and look after we finish talking, go back and look it up on YouTube. But the opening sequence of Voyager has the spaceship like going through the rings of Saturn and going round the outside of planet. It was beautiful like spatial 3D thing. And I said to Mike, look, I want it to look like this, right? And I showed him and he's like, oh, I get it, right? So that was where that, that whole Colony Wars thing was kind of like, it, it it was built to show off objects in 3D space that you could actually fly to and fly around, right? And then you could have battles around them and you could shoot, but you knew which way up you were and you knew where you were going, right? Mm. That was the really cool part of it, right? So it was brilliant. It worked out really, really great. And there was another... There was another game that we wanted to make that never got made that was called uh, Zero G. And it was to, to use the Colony Wars engine yeah. or create this like, uh, like, a, like a battlefield where you were going after other people and they were coming after you. But it was in space in this giant restricted cage and you were flying a vehicle and you had different weapons at your disposal. It would have been so good. It would have been so good. But it never got made because like, you know, the whole thing collapsed in on itself and it kind of it kind of fell apart but yeah that the, the colony was you, you could do a whole show on that on its own really well ian this has been absolutely incredible thank you so much for uh spending your evening with us um some many 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 great stories there um so i'm sure as well as me and dan and many of our listeners would like to know what are you what are you up to these days obviously i'd moved over here to the states and we, we set up uh five thousand feet and and, and and we did really well with that we did stack with daniel negranu which was the first uh poker game that that really went out there and uh, we ended up, believe it or not, making uh, slot machines for the casino floor for uh, for Bally's. We got like about 20 slots out there. So when, whenever you go to Vegas or you come to Reno, you might be playing one of my uh, one of my slot games that we oh, made. Wow. Oh, cool. Because um, uh, they're just video games now. Think about it, right? Mm, just, yeah, yeah. There's no mechanical reels anymore. But uh, so, yeah, but, but what had happened was we'd, we'd had, I'd, I'd got married to, uh, I married the beautiful and wonderful Cassandra, who I adore. And uh, she actually, she used to work in the Boston office for uh, Cygnosis. So mm. uh, not not only did I get a great career out of Cygnosis, I got a lot more than I bargained for. <laughs> um, but uh, so and we're, we're still married. We're still happily married to this day, right? So and she's, she's wonderful. She's absolutely wonderful. And um, so uh, we had two kids over in the UK. When we got here, I was working just 24-7 trying to get this thing rocking and getting it going. And she said to me, hey, you know what? You've got to make a choice here. You've already missed the first three years of Maxine's life and you, you're starting to do the same thing with Miles, right? It was six months at the time. And uh, so it was kind of a it was kind of a crossroads decision, really, to be honest with you. And I, I decided that I didn't want to miss the time of my children growing up. And um, so I kind of... I kind of made a, a conscious decision to reel back on traveling all over the world and doing deals at three o'clock in the morning in Tokyo and, and being a dad, right? And 
spending some of the money I'd made to actually have a family and create some memories and be a part of it. And I found out that, guess what? I was really good at being a dad and I really enjoyed it. So I kind of became a lot more family orientated. And that's the reason kind of why I've been here for, for this length of time. And we had two more children. I have the wonderful Amelia, who is now 13. And I have the incredible and force of nature that is Maisie, who is, uh, who is nine. And, um, they're, uh, they're amazing. I love them. So I dedicated a lot of my time to that. So I became very much more family oriented and, 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 and that took a lot of other time away from me. But I said once Maisie was like at, um, a junior school and she was off and going that I'd go back. So I did. And, uh, I'd always helped a lot of people and I did a lot of deals on the side and help projects get done and help companies get off the ground and worked on, worked on a bunch of interesting stuff. Right. I mean, you know, too, too, too many things to detail here, but, uh, ended up working with uh, with a guy on an optical recognition system that I got along really well with, and uh, we've uh, we've got a, a technology company called Bazoop now, and um, it uh, it works in um, game support networks, so uh, like um, bringing together all of the huge amount of data that's out there on individual games into one place so people can like go and find the YouTube video or the Vimeo or they can find the, the where it is on Twitch or they can look at the playthrough or they can get the instruction manuals. Or, you know, like, you know, how many times you sat there and like trolled through the internet to try and research information about like games that you're really interested in. So, yeah, so I think, I think I made the right choice. You know, I mean, I, I pulled back, raised a family, I have children that all speak to me, including a 19-year-old daughter, um, and she's still friendly with me, which is quite amazing, even though it's like living with something from The Exorcist from time to time. <laughs> and, uh, I've got a, I've got a married that uh, I've got a wife that I'm still happily married to after uh, being together for 25 years, and I'd say that it kind of worked out, right? You know, uh, uh, you know. Right. I, I think I think over the years I was good to games, but I'll tell you what, man, games have been so good to me, so good to me, right? And when you talk to John tomorrow. Tell him that Ian still loves him dearly and see what he says, right? I absolutely will do, Ian. Listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I'm glad that life's going great for you out there as well. Thank you for the little trip down memory lane and reminiscing about some of our all-time favourite games with us this week. No, absolute pleasure, guys. Honestly, really, it really has been my pleasure, right? I, I, you know, I, I love talking about this stuff. But you know, if you guys ever want to do another one and you want you want to get um, you know some of the real low-down dirty stories on what really happened, you should get get in touch again and we should do another session. I think it, we have to. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It was like a Roman bacchanalian orgy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a teaser. <laughs> you have no idea what went on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adia, mate. Really enjoyed that. All right, boys. Enjoying the show? Why not check out some other great retro gaming podcasts like Retro Asylum, RGDS, Maximum Power Up, Arcade Attack, Arcade Perfect, and the Ten Pence Arcade.